Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? Tom, I'm good. And you? It is blistering hot in Chicago in October. It was almost 90 yesterday, and I'm not happy about it. But beyond that, things are good. It's going to rain tonight and tomorrow, and we will. I will be right with the world once again. It will be gray and miserable in October in Chicago. That's what I'm looking at. We must be having the same weather today. Um, it won't be gray and cloudy and cool in, in Dallas in October, but it's 90 degrees here, and we're getting rain tonight. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. This is this is just what the weather is now, I guess. Uh, but today we are going to be talking about uh, not quite a tropical situation, but a bit of a uh, almost deserted island um, as we're digging into Miro Sparks' uh, second novel, Robinson. This one came out, I believe, in 1958, so just a couple years after uh, The Comforters hit. And this is something you pointed out to me that she's pretty much publishing every two years or so over the course of her career, which is wild. And I'm very curious to see if there's ever a drop off because from the debut to the sophomore novel, uh, they're very different beasts, but I don't know. I feel like she's uh, she might be getting stronger from from one to the next. It's so interesting. These short novels feels so strange to me in the best way. You know, they're they're not as strange like in a supernatural sense necessarily. I mean, there are there are some elements of that, but it's not like strange like sci-fi or fantasy, but strange in kind of um an unexpected way that the characters think and relate to each other. And her writing is just really quirky, I think, and and just a total joy. I, I'm I'm loving it and I just can't wait to the next one. You know, it's something to it's something I'm looking forward to, each one that we do. Um when you say quirky, what what about it kind of strikes you that way? I think that it's it's again the way that her her characters kind of perceive their world and some of the assumptions that they make, certainly the way that they speak and their reactions to one another within the confines of this story. It's, I I just find it again, uh, I'm repeating myself, but kind of unexpected and, uh, and not what, not how you would predict if you were, I think a writer and just like writing a dialogue between a group of, you know, three guys and a gal, which is a, what a lot of the, a lot of the dialogue is in, in Robinson. Yeah. It's, I'm probably not explaining myself very well. No, I mean, I, I totally hear what you're saying there. I mean, I think there's something very unpredictable about the conversations, but at the same time, they, there's a naturalism to it. Like this is this is just how people talk, and, and oftentimes where, you know, you have very distinct people with distinct attitudes bouncing off of each other, 
uh, coming at things with certain, uh, as you said, I think as you said, assumptions or ideas about what's taking place, and they just sort of, yeah, they they just ping pong, and so that it feels at times like they're. I mean, I would say in this novel, January, our protagonist feels at times almost too clever by half, like she's a little bit ahead of the game, but it's more that she's just quick. She's a quick person. And that sense of personhood, her characters just all feel inhabited and real. Like they just feel like a person you could, you could run into in an airport or on a plane flying over the Azores and then suddenly find yourself stuck on an island with them for the next few months. Um, And then what the hell happens from there? How do you interact? How do you, how do you uh, get along? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the the quirky aspects of, of January, apart from her name, is is this kind of idea that she has in her head or this practice where, when the the guy that owns um, the island Robinson does something that she disagrees with or annoys her or pisses her off, she just takes a few of his cigarettes, you know, unasked and. And to her, that's like, you know, she's, she's even, she's even the scale, like, like he just annoyed her. And so she's just going to steal some cigarettes from him. And, and, but I mean, she's, she's definitely not the only quirky character. I mean, all five of the characters that are trapped, so to speak on this Island for a period of months, um, have their very own individual peculiarities as well. Uh, she kind of views the um, the theft of the cigarettes as almost like a mortification, and like explicitly in that religious context. But let's uh, before we get to the ten minute mark, let's just do a, a, a quick quick uh, scene setting of what's what's going on in this novel. Um, so Robinson uh, largely takes place on an island called Robinson. I believe it was previously uh, the name of it was uh, Ferrera. And it follows three people who survive a plane crash onto the island. Um, the island is in the Azores. It's somewhat remote. Um, its only contact with the outside world is when a ship comes to collect pomegranates. Uh, there is a small pom- pomegranate farm on the uh, on the island. And um, January wakes up after the crash uh, in terrible pain, and she's being tended to by a man named Robinson. Uh, and she finds out that the only people on the island are Robinson. Uh, a young boy named Miguel, Jimmy, I believe, Jimmy Waterford. For some reason, Waterford just doesn't stick in my head, so I have to keep referring back to it. Uh, a man named Jimmy Waterford, another man named Tom Wells. Jimmy and Tom are the only other survivors of the crash. And yeah, this is um, told from some years down the line from January's perspective. She uses a journal that Robinson encouraged her to keep while she was on the island um, as sort of her her guide uh, of sorts. Um, Robinson very much encourages her to only write facts, not to include any suppositions, which initially I think January interprets as a way for her not to uh, create hope, hopes that can be crushed, um, but just kind of stay grounded in the day-to-day. I think there are other reasons why Robinson would discourage flights of fancy, but we can get into those as we move along. Um, But yeah, so she's writing this after the fact about their time on the island. When they uh, crash land, it's going to be, I think, what, three months until the vessel returns? And you have to to make the best of it during that time. 
Yeah, the boat apparently comes around once a year. And so they all know that, you know, eventually, eventually civilization is going to come to them. And while the pomegranate boat people don't know that they're going to be rescuing, (laughs) rescuing uh, some plane crash survivors, you know, that that's, that's when everyone presumes that uh, January and Jimmy and Tom Wells will be able to go back home. And January has a a a boy, uh, a young boy at home. I guess she was in Lisbon doing some, uh, well, really doing a, a transfer because she's a journalist and she was getting ready to write an article about um, three islands. And so um, the Azores proper were going to be an island that she covered, but unfortunately she never gets there because of this plane crash that uh, happens on route from Lisbon to the Azores. But yeah, in some ways it's this kind of very isolated place that Robinson apparently feels comfortable living there um, because I think they said that he, he has lived there for a number of years and he's a really interesting guy himself. Should we should we talk a little bit about the owner of the island and the island's namesake, Robinson? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Robinson is uh, he's a, he's a, he's an interesting guy. He's a, he's a little strange. Um, though he doesn't, there isn't a lot about his demeanor that comes across as strange. I mean, he's perfectly well mannered. He speaks very clearly. He isn't going like saying random things or going off on very strange flights of fancy. Uh, he does have very set ideas about things and particularly about religion and superstition but uh he's been living on this island for a few years prior to that he spent 10 years living in mexico in an isolated ranch um or some such thing he's very wealthy he comes from money um he spent his youth uh attending seminary with the perp- with the plan of uh taking um holy orders becoming a priest but eventually had a falling out with the practices of the church, specifically around what he felt was the pagan worship of Mary. He felt the church itself was pushing to folks this idea of Mary as more than like an intermediary. That, frankly, that there was a bit of a, and he's not wrong, that there was a bit of a, a Marianist uh, cult uh, developing within the church and that this was unacceptable and something to be um, fought against or at least at least he could not be a priest uh, within that context. And having opted not to do that, um, having opted not to take orders, that's when he kind of self-isolates. He removes himself from the world. This generates quite a bit of conversation uh, between January and he, as January is a convert to Catholicism, a little bit of a, a theme developing, at least... Can it be a theme of his two books? I'm yes. willing to, I, I, sure, but I'm also willing to bet it's gonna it's gonna keep happening too. But she's a she's a convert and uh, has her own thoughts on um, <laughs> on religion on um, Catholicism in particular. Man, this this book goes into that so much more, and or at least in such a different way from the Comforters, uh, a little bit more explicit and fervent of a um, argument uh, about what it means to be Catholic, what faith actually entails, demonstrations of it, and the like. 
It's interesting because um, one of the things that happens in the in the book is that you know after the plane crash, January loses consciousness. Tom Wells loses consciousness. I don't think Jimmy Jimmy is injured, but he never loses consciousness. But when they when they come to and are in Robinson's home and being cared by him. They ask about their things. Where where are my things? And they're pretty much told that, oh, well, you know, everything was scattered everywhere. Many things were destroyed. Many things weren't found. Jimmy, who's the least injured, and Robinson go off and they bury, I guess, the 17 or so people that didn't survive the crash. And they reclamate like those people's I think pretty much anything that flew off of their bodies or their persons after the crash. And so, you know, there's a pile of shoes and there's some odds and ends that at first January is like, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take or wear any of any of this stuff. She thinks it's just feels not right. But one thing that she hopes to find is her rosary. And that gets kind of into a difficult place with Robinson because he's very adamant that he doesn't want any what he considers superstitious relics or artifacts or things around. He says because he doesn't want the boy, Miguel, to be exposed to them because he is very easily influenced by them. But then at the same time, you've got Tom Wells and Tom Wells is kind of kind of a bit of a flimflam man. He goes around peddling these lucky charms that he kind of concocts stories about how, you know, this person was saved from really extreme circumstances and near death because they were wearing this lucky charm that is, you know, and he's got all kinds of origin stories for what this lucky charm derives from and, you know, what it means and why it brings people luck. But Robinson feels the same way about these charms too. He, he, he doesn't want them around. They make him very uncomfortable apparently. And he thinks that Miguel would be, would be badly influenced by them. So that's kind of like an interesting theme that in a way it's the juxtaposition against like, a, I think something that we would see more as a, maybe just because we're more used to people with rosaries than, you know, these lucky charms that, that we think could really make a a difference in someone's life. But to Robinson, that kind of, I felt he put them kind of in the same bucket. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think in some respects it it ties back to this notion. I mean, to somewhat pagan notions of how, how faith works, how belief structures work, and what the purpose of these things are. Wells is interesting because when he's first presented, we're given to believe that he kind of goes in for a lot of the occult stuff. Because, I mean, and stuff's, I think, accurate there. I mean, th- these lucky charms are pulled from all over the world, every possible tradition, um, some, like, some to the extent that you don't even know if it's a real thing or not. Like he keeps referring to this one that's a, a druidic symbol and, and clearly like the newest in the line of charms that he's trying to hawk. But this is a druidic symbol that was found in this place and the person who held it. And you're like, 
what what does that what does a druidic symbol even mean necessarily like i mean for all we know it's got like viking runes on it and he doesn't know any better so but but initially initially it very much comes across that he's more than a bit of a believer in these things i think as it moves along we get a better and better sense of what kind of person he is and what that kind of person would use such things for. And it's not very great. It's mostly to take advantage of people who are seeking something. I think that seeking component is a big part of, at least I think it's a big part of what um, Spark is playing with, with this Clearly, in the fifties, there was a, there were a lot of different ideas and interests and beliefs going around in England and in London. I'll say that we don't see a lot of London uh, in this novel. Certainly not anywhere near what we saw in the Comforters. But what we do see in those very scant pages, it feels like an incredibly vibrant, like thriving place. It, it just it feels full, and especially against an island that feels small and empty in so many ways. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that January lived a bit, you know, she's a journalist, she's a writer, and she lives in Chelsea um, with her young son. And it, it's kind of the same milieu as we saw in the in the comforters in some ways, you know, just kind of um, going out with your friends and and it being like a very social, intellectually stimulating type of place. With, with this context of... Uh, of- it being intellectual, social, people just kind of rubbing shoulders. I mean, there certainly seems to also be the sense of people trying to find out, like find purpose and find direction and find meaning. And some folks are finding that through these occult practices of lucky charms and the like. And January comes to it through her conversion to Roman Catholicism. And I think that there is there is a bit of an undercurrent of that seeking that um, Spark is kind of exploring. And also in how that, how the convert interacts with the person born into a thing. Because much like Caroline and, and then the comforters, January doesn't always get along very well with those who came up in, uh, in the Roman Catholic faith, especially her brother-in-law, Ian. But maybe we should say something about um, January having this, having this son, but a little bit about her, her family life to give us like even more context for, for who she is and, and, and how how she got to where, where she ended up. Yeah. So she, she becomes pregnant really early in life. She in fact has to drop out of, I guess what would be the equivalent of high school for, for us. And she has the baby, even though there are, there are members of her family who think that she should have an abortion instead. She has the baby. She's got two sisters, both of whom are married. She's not a fan of either of their husbands, but she was estranged from the sisters for a while after the birth of her child, but then they kind of had a reconciliation. Yeah. She's when she's on the Island, when she's on Robinson, she kind of makes a lot of parallels between Robinson and her sister's husband, Ian. And I think in part because both are birthright Catholics and then both have this kind of, thing about the Catholic church is corrupt because it's all about, you know, this worship of idols of the Virgin Mary. She sees some, some parallels at times, but another time she kind of doubts some of the parallels she sees. One of, one of the distinctions she's makes is that 
Well, Ian is just kind of an ass, so to speak. He likes to argue with her and, you know, he doesn't really have a lot to support his, his convictions about the criticisms of the Catholic Church. But whereas Robinson has actually published, you know, real articles uh, that have been in journals about where the Catholic Church has gone astray and what's wrong with the Catholic Church and the, and the symbolism that the Catholic Church has kind of adopted that kind of, according to Robinson at least, corrupts the faith. There's a distinction, I think, that she's drawing between um, uh, reason and rancor. Ian travels to the continent just to go see festivals and complain about them and to which everyone else is like, well, why, why, why bother going? And it's like, I have to bear witness to this sort of thing. And he, he also seems to have a particular interest or fascination with January. Um, she is the only of the three sisters to have a child. I think on Ian's end, there's a, a certain distaste for women um, and a certain cruelty that's factoring into it. Uh, I think with Robinson, it ends up being much more of an intellectual, like, exercise or an intellectual engagement with his faith that's leading him in those particular directions. Um, And January's husband dies within six months of them being married. So I'm not even sure that he necessarily sees Brian, the son. Yeah. I, you know, I can't recall. I feel like that, that the husband, the the father of the child is like dispensed with in two sentences. So, and then he, he, he reappears very briefly later that he was 58 when they got together and that they got together on a bet and then it's never brought up again. It's, I mean, it's, there, there are a lot of those sorts of moments dropped in throughout. Um, There is a conversation with um, Miguel where they're trying to figure out um, how old he is and when it's his birthday. And he clearly doesn't know, but he picks January 1st and January says, that's my birthday. And, and suddenly it's like, oh, well now we know why her sisters are Agnes and Julia and she's January clearly because she was a, Born on January first, so her parents right. decided that's the way to go. I mean, just I love the level of control Spark has with like just how tightly constructed these novels are, but also those sorts of like little moments flitted in that gives such depth to the character without saying anything at all. Like it doesn't actually give you serious insight into January, but it makes you as the reader feel that much more connected to her. Like I, I don't know, it just it just generates such. Um, such a, such an empathetic connection to a character to to do that and i mean this is her second novel and i mean she was doing the first one so why shouldn't she do in the second one but there there's a there's a a master level craftsmanship going on here that's really i don't know it's just it's a joy to read i find well i found that kind of connection as well with when there are descriptions of when January's on the island and she's thinking about her son and some of the, the things she's done with her son and the places they've gone, his name is Brian. And Brian, Brian seems to interact with his mother as like a complete adult. I he's, he's, (laughs) and they do like very adult things. Like she doesn't seem to have this kind of motherly affectionate, relationship with him. I, you know, I I think she, she loves him and, but, but she does, she just kind of treats him like an adult and he seems to respond to her as an adult. Although I think he's what, like seven or something. He's quite young. No, he's, he's older than that. He's like actually a teenager. I think, I think think they, she suggests at some point, she says something about 16 years ago or something like that, that suggests around when, and, and when he's taught, I mean, like he definitely, even setting that aside, 
he talks like he's in his 20s. He talks like he is like someone who moves about Chelsea on his own without any concerns or anything else. There's a scene where um, January um, suspects Ian of at times following her because she says that he's always he's always on the lookout and waiting to try to catch her like having a tryst with a with a guy. And Brian and she see Ian kind of spying on them before he sees them. And then when Ian kind of like can no longer like deny that he's like there because they've, they've spotted him, you know, Brian just says, oh, well, w- would you like to join us for some coffee? You know, he, like <laughs> January isn't, isn't ready to like extend any common courtesy to him because what's he doing? He's like being so totally dishonest and distrustful and trying to, to catch her doing something bad. But Brian just kind of like steps in and does the polite thing to keep everything smooth within the family. In, in that specific instance, they were not in London. Like they, they were often like they were in on the continent, weren't they? They like, were in they France. Were, right. And they thought Ian was in Germany at some festival <laughs> right. and they noticed him because she noticed a car circling around where that where she was every few minutes and finally she like looked harder and realized it was ian driving it so i mean like this isn't just like peeking over the fence to see if there's someone in the backyard with her this is tracking them down in a foreign country <laughs> right. to, and jerry of course is like this is bizarre and as you said brian's just kind of like oh okay well we're having coffee. Do you want some? Like, let's let's just for for him. Perhaps Ian is just his uncle, right? And this is just the what this guy is like. I don't know. Well, it's it's funny too. Uh, there's there's a lot of humor in this book, just like the Comforters. But um, January, she's got a lot of time on her hands on this island, and she kind of has this rumination from time to time about, oh, you know wonder who Brian is staying with, you know, is he staying with, with my sister and Ian, or is he staying with my other sister and her husband Curly? And although she's not like a huge fan of Curly either, you know, she very much prefers and hopes that Brian is staying with Curly because he's just, I guess, just not this gotcha kind of guy that that Ian seems to be and in some ways just insufferable you know with his whole religious rant that doesn't really have a lot of thoughtful meaning behind it and i also just think that you have in this one family the, these three sisters january who gets pregnant at probably like 16 or 17 is widowed almost immediately and raises the son you have Agnes, the oldest, who marries their mother's doctor a month after the mother's death. And Ian's not significant, but older than Agnes. And you have Julia, who's married to a guy named Curly, who's also a bit of a bookie. And that that range of experience in one family, I think, also speaks to sort of the, the social movement, the dynamism that um, she really gets across about the, the London uh, of that time. Um, there's also a really great scene of Curly taking uh, Brian out on the town for an evening and just talking to him like he's like he's a little man and just it, it, it's the kind of thing where you you half expected at the end of it for January to make some sort of comment about the things that Curly did with her son, but it doesn't happen. She is sort of like and that and the story is relayed and then we're done. Like it just 
the lack of judgment there, I thought was really fascinating and and very neat and gave some really interesting insight to how January seems to to function and move through the world. Should we talk about Jimmy? Because, you know, Jimmy, of course, was on the plane from Lisbon and he's one of the survivors, but it turns out that he's a relative of Robinson and actually the heir to Robinson Island, should anything happen to Robinson. As we said um, earlier, Robinson is uh, very wealthy. Um, the money comes from his parents and um, family holdings. And it's come to pass that uh, they are involved in the motor scooter business in uh, Northern Africa. And basically, Jimmy Jimmy was traveling on this plane uh, to land in the Azores and then take a um, boat over uh, and basically spend the time to try and convince Robinson to uh, sign over uh, all control to Jimmy uh, to basically just expedite the process of him becoming the heir and just, you know, no longer the heir, but actually in charge of the family finances because they want to make some business moves and, and that whole sort of thing, but they can't if Robinson is, is in charge. And, and Jimmy is also not English. He speaks English haltingly with some really interesting syntax, which is also an interesting thing. Robinson himself is also not English near as I can tell, despite his name. Yeah, I think both I think both Robinson and Jimmy grew up in Gibraltar. Right. And yes. I think that that Jimmy at least I, I don't know, perhaps I, perhaps Gibraltar was a Dutch colony, but but there's reference to the fact that Jimmy Jimmy's native tongue I think is is Dutch. But his his speech in throughout this book and just the way he talks, it's one of the most delightful things. And I think I commented to you, Tom, that it's something that I think would be so tricky to, to just hit the right note so that, that it's not annoying to the reader, but I loved it. It didn't annoy me at all. I don't know. What was your impression? Oh, I thought it was great. I also just, I just marveled at the consistency as well. I mean, just like, how someone who's not a native speaker might hit upon a phrase that to them perfectly encapsulates what they what they think and what they're feeling, but is almost nonsensical, but simply by like dint of repetition, you start to get a sense of it. So for instance, um, is not to be endured, I lose my nerves. Wherefore a conference is enough that I grieve in my heart. And like it, it's it almost sounds like a like a, a phrase book or one of those old computer programs trying to translate from one one language to the next with no awareness of how to actually smooth things over. It's it's really great. And just listening, I wasn't thinking this when I was reading it, but listening to you read it aloud, it's almost like a really intelligent, unannoying Yoda. Yes, it also sounds to me like um, some of the aliens encountered in some of the Star Trek episodes, where like. It just can't, it can't quite get it. Whoever's doing the translation just can't quite handle everything that's being thrown at it. So it comes out and very, like, very choppy mm-hmm. in a way, right? And, um, and, and everything feels declarative, even if it's not. Um, now it's, it's really fun. I mean, and, and Jimmy, Jimmy and January form a bit of a bond. Others in the island seem to have some concerns that it might be something else forming there. I think it's really sweet how 
January is quite upset because she's lost all of her makeup in the crash. And she has no skincare products for her face. And this is upsetting to her. And of course, as you would expect on like a deserted island, the guys are not sympathetic to this at all, except for Jimmy. Jimmy is very <laughs> sympathetic to the fact that that January has this this need for stuff to put on her face and to look pretty. Um, and I just thought it was so sweet the way he 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 interacts with her in that regard. Uh, she also makes a comment that she feels like she re- is revealing too much when she doesn't have makeup on her face, that there is there is a masking that she's attempting as well. Well, you've, you mentioned, Tom, the journals. And one of the things that the journals do is provide some exposition on the characters. And this was, I think, for me, the funniest part of the book by far. But January recalls in her journal a story that Jimmy told about his birth mother. Do you remember this? It's the weirdest, it's the weirdest thing. So he claims that um, his, his birth mother, part of this wealthy Gibraltar family, was, was away from home for a while. And her father, his grandfather, was extremely strict about the food that was served in the house. And they had a personal chef. And one of the things that the father was adamant about was that that you couldn't put any salt or pepper or any other condiment or spice on the food when it was brought to the table, that the chef brought it out as it was meant to be tasted and, and presented, and it was sinful to make any adulteration to the chef's art- artistry. But nonetheless there was always like a full uh, salt and pepper shakers on the table. And so in defiance of this uh, known rule, the daughter grown at this time um, returns to the, to the home and proceeds to put a little pile of salt on her plate. And everyone around the table just gasps and they're like in shock, like, how could you? And her father becomes very angry and, and so she just walks out of the house and in the in with the intention of going to spend the night at an inn she just decides to live on the streets from thereafter <laughs> it's 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 phrased something like and she finds that she that she finds that she rather likes life on the streets or something like that uh, it's just so strange and and then and then January speculates that um she actually wonders about that story and would guess that Jimmy is actually um, Robinson's half brother, right? Um, and not and not second cousin, which also is which is also interesting with Miguel, who is not Robinson's son, um, the young boy living on the island, but is instead the child of one of the pomegranate farmers. Um, the mother died, and so the I mean we say pomegranate farmer, but they're also sailors. He brings him on board and then he dies. And so Robinson takes him on uh, in order to care for him until he's old enough to be sent off to school, which is what's supposed to happen when the boat comes anyways, is that Miguel is also going to leave the island and uh, head to Lisbon uh, for a fuller education. I didn't, I didn't think of it. I didn't think of it before. uh, But when you were talking about Miguel 
the, you know, the juxtaposition between the two boys in the book. Yeah. Brian might be older, but you know, she's also thinking in the past to some of the, you know, when he was at, at a younger age and Miguel, Miguel's a very vulnerable kid. He, um, he, even though he's on this Island and can traipse around wherever he wants, he seems to be very much almost tied to Robinson and, in, in almost a, a literal way, a physical way. Like he follows Robinson around everywhere. Robinson perhaps uh, facilitates this or, you know, kind of uh, has made Miguel like a, a codependent or dependent on him. But, but yeah, he gets very upset. He cries a lot. He, he's, um, he's an emotional kid. He's, he's not at all like Brian. Yeah. There's a real um, naivete to uh, Miguel um, so much so that, there's a bit of a competition among the three castaways as to who Miguel will most like. And he gloms onto Tom Wells, partially because it seems like Wells is a little bit more physically active, like playing kind of roughhousing a bit with the kid or getting him involved in, in, in those sorts of things. Even though Wells, Wells is unconscious and was probably the most badly injured um, with busted up ribs. Um, and kind of whenever he feels like not doing something, he'll claim that uh, his ribs are acting up. Uh, meanwhile, he'll be happy to be on the lawn uh, playing whatever with uh, with Miguel. Yeah, and and Tom Wells also gives Miguel some some of his doodads too, some of his yep. lucky charms. It's it's also interesting. I noticed this when I was reading it, and I don't I don't know if there's an answer to this, but every time there's a mention of Tom, it's Tom Wells. She uses his last name every time. I'm not quite sure. I don't, I haven't, I don't have a good theory about why that is. Um, doesn't she say at the start that his name uh, sticks in her head better than Jimmy's does that it took her, or was it the other way around? I can't quite remember. Oh yeah. Um, it's very, very early on. She has to keep asking what Jimmy's name is, um, but it was a full week before the name had sunk in Jimmy Waterford. Uh, this Jimmy was very friendly to me as if we were previously acquainted. It later comes out that they chatted on the plane. Um, it was some time before I remembered having met him on the Lisbon plane. The monosyllabic Tom Wells, however, stuck in my head right away. And I think it's just because there's something about that Tom Wells that just sort of rings for her. And it also it also demonstrates sort of the, the distance. I mean, Wells is not as much of a character in the novel until about the midway point, whereas she spends a lot of time with Robinson, some time with Miguel, and a good bit of time with Jimmy and interacting and having conversations. Wells is, Wells sort of pops up, but he doesn't, his role doesn't really kick in until the, the back half uh, of the novel, which is probably a good point to talk a little bit more about what's happened. We've talked a lot about that they're on this island. There are these castaways. We've kind of filled in a little bit of, of January's backstory and some of the various characters, like who they were and you know, how, how they kind of ended up being um, where they are. But uh, it's made clear that Robinson, Robinson seemed to be much more comfortable with the people on the island while they were invalids. And as they started to move around more and as they started to like express agency, as it were, his temperament seems to change. He's very insistent on things being done a certain way. And uh, he... Yeah, he kind of just can't quite give uh, on certain things and frankly starts to argue with, or not even argue, just state that it's his island, this is how things are, and I expect it to, I expect you to respect that, which is a rather tricky thing to say to three adults 
who are find themselves in a circumstance they didn't sign up for. But for Robinson, that doesn't really matter. And um, eventually, he discovers that January is making a rosary for Miguel. And that's a real problem for Robinson. He says as much. And that evening, her rosary and uh, Wells's recovered cargo, which is a suitcase full of his you know, lucky charms, disappear. And the next morning, they discover these things are gone, but they also discover that Robinson is nowhere to be seen. And when they finally venture outside, they find trampled grass and blood. And slowly but surely, they track it. Uh, up to this is a this island is formed by a volcano that's still moderately active. They go to the furnace, as Robinson referred to it, and it looks to all the world like Robinson was attacked, dragged to the top of the volcano, and thrown in. And so now this novel that was about some castaways and engaging in religious doctrinal <laughs> conversation about expiation and and the like. It's now turned into a locked room mystery because they are the only people on the island. So who could, who possibly could have attacked and killed Robinson? Yeah, you think that all the tension for the first half of the novel is just going to continue to be this kind of psychological tension because you've got you've got like this this low grade warfare going on between the control freak Robinson, who you know, makes comments like you're eating too much food. You know, we don't, you know, we, we don't have certain supplies here anymore, or I'm going to take your rosary from you, or how dare you accuse me of going into your room and taking your rosary because is it really your room? It's my room. You know, this is my house. So that kind of like low boil tension. And then all of a sudden it's like, Robinson has disappeared. You know, half the side of the mountain is like a bloodbath and they see all of these clothes, much more clothing than Robinson could have possibly had worn on his body or anyone's body. I mean, it's a lot of clothes that they find kind of almost soaked in blood on this trail that leads to the furnace. Yeah. And then January just starts understandably like, what the hell is going on? Thinks that the most likely scenario is that Jimmy and Tom Wells acted in concert to kill Robinson for some reason. There's some other theories that she has as well, but she seems to kind of think that's the most likely. We should note as well that it it becomes known to the readers quite early because I guess Miguel tells January and Jimmy about it one day that there are three secret passages on the island, like caves or tunnels that go from one point to the other. And this is a pretty big island. I mean, there's a there's a topographical map uh, and a place map at the beginning, and it says that it's 84 square miles. So you could very easily get lost in this island. And I love the fact that the shape of the island is kind of like a, a murdered person. Um, it's got legs and arms, and um, she even mentions the fact that if you're looking at it from an aerial view, it, it looks kind of like a, a person that's just like been splayed out. Yeah, it definitely has the um, the chalk outline feel to a, a crime scene photo, which is 
Great. Yeah. Um, somewhat early on, um, January's at the, there's really like one decent beach on the island. Um, Robinson has told them not to go into the water because of sharks, uh, that there are strong currents and the currents don't get you the sharks. Well, there is a freshwater lake right near the, uh, the house that they all stay at. But uh, January's at the beach and she sees Miguel and I forget exactly why, but uh, she kind of goes after, like follows after him and he disappears or no, rather she starts to head back to the house and Miguel gets there well before she got there and there was no way for him to have passed her on the track. And so it comes out that there are these secret passages and Robinson is against uh, them knowing about them. And in some ways he's rather reluctant for them to see too, too much of the Island in general. He's kind of keeping them near the house as much as he, he can seemingly. But after Robinson disappears, they search the whole Island to see if they can find Robinson to see if there's anyone else on the Island. And they insist that uh, Miguel show them the secret passages, but that's just, another fun layer suddenly the the house you've been staying in ha, uh, the walls aren't really walls they're actually uh hallways and anyone can get anywhere faster if you if you know about this little secret it's neat it, it adds another layer and, and it frankly serves a a function within the the larger narrative too um as as it moves along yeah we, we find out as well that there's a gun room you know, there, when Robinson goes missing, there's there's a gun room and January is determined that she's going to keep control of all of the guns um, that leave the gun room. And she puts the key to the gun room that she steals from Robinson's bedroom after he disappears around her neck with a, with a string because she, she wants to control the guns. There's all these kind of yeah, locked room kind of elements to it. Did, did this happen to you as well, where it felt like the house and even the island would um, expand and shrink uh, as the narrative almost demanded? Like like you said, all of a sudden there's a gun room and all of a sudden, and maybe it's partially because when Robinson disappears, they have greater reign of the island and of, of the space so that they actually inhabit it more fully it's not just the the rooms they're sleeping in the kitchen the veranda and that it yeah maybe, maybe it's just that that they're 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 now able to go in other places and there was no reason to talk about the gun room before because who cared that there was a gun room well now that there might be a killer on the island the gun room means quite a few more things and is far more important um it's interesting it gave a um not fantastical, but it kind of upped some of the uncertainty around the circumstances when the gun room appeared and they started going into Robinson's study more. She made a closer study of his um, library, which when she first saw it, she somewhat dismissed because the books were behind glass and that's not something she would ever do. Well, then she looked in the wake of his disappearance, she looked harder and was like, oh, this is actually a really good reference library. And look, here are all the books on Marianist theology, and they're really well-thumbed and annotated. He really did his work. And she starts to have this different appreciation of Robinson. It's, it's tracking through January's mind as she's taking in the people around her, the circumstances on the island, and just how how it tacks between um, perspectives. Uh, is Jimmy a murderer? Uh, Tom Wells, he seems like he's actually mixed up in even some even worse stuff um, or other worse things. Um, and Jimmy has a motive, right? Right. Jimmy has a motive. He stands to inherit all this. A chapter opens with her 
uh, trying to put on the persona of each person by like adopting their physical characteristics in her mind. And uh, Tom Wells is angry. Is he angry enough to kill? Well, maybe not quite that angry. And, uh, but her take on each person changes over the course of the novel in such interesting and true to life ways. I find like, it's just such a, it's a real feat of psychology of like constructing a, a person's, personality i guess uh which is a terrible way of putting it um that it's it's really it's really quite it's really quite something i mean it's it's a brilliantly constructed novel but even as just sort of experiencing someone else's mind for a bit it's really it's really quite wonderful well i just feel like once robinson disappears and all the blood is found spark just like ramps up the fun factor it's like okay we're turning the volume to nine, you know, because it's just, um, you, you don't see this kind of coming. Nope. <laughs> um, and then it's suddenly, oh my God, you know, what's, what's happened. And now, you know, you get into that, that classic locked room scenario where everyone starts suspecting everyone else. And now suddenly Tom Wells claims I can't move like you guys can and you guys are going out to to look for Robinson, but I'm afraid to be in this house by myself. You know, I don't think, I don't think you should leave me alone so that I'll just be the next one to get picked off kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a really fun book. Yeah. It's almost like the moment Robinson disappears, the uh, wet blanket has been removed. Dad's gone. And so now, now the party can kick off and it really gets, people's personalities become much more apparent um, without that sort of restriction that Robinson and, and as the owner of the house, as their savior functionally, when he's gone, all bets, all bets really do become off and they get, things get very strange and very dangerous and very funny, very, very, very quickly. We're not going to go into how the novel wraps itself because in some ways i mean it matters but it's not the point of this novel and it's it's fun it's it's also very interesting and one of the best bits of banter in the whole novel comes towards the end and i don't want to spoil that for anyone yeah it's it's i i feel the same way tom it's very much it's the ride that's fun it's the fact that you think you're you think you're in one type of novel and then she just flips the switch on you and now suddenly you're in a murder mystery. And, and on that note, I think this is a good moment to, um, as we're starting to wrap up, kind of talk about maybe some of the, the antecedents uh, of this novel. I mean, look, it's called Robinson and it's about people on a almost desert island. Like clearly there's some Robinson Crusoe uh, going on here, which I will confess to... I've probably read selections of it over the years. I've never sat down and read the whole thing. I don't know about you. Have you read Robinson Crusoe? No. No. Um, Sadly not. But I did a, I did a quick look in to see pick up see what themes people pull out, kind of check back in on the plot. My memory of Robinson Crusoe is that he's just on an island. The actual novel, he's doing a lot more than that. He engages in the slave trade. He owns a plantation in Brazil. There's a lot... <laughs> There's a lot more to old Robinson than than uh, I think usually gets portrayed in, well, at least the media of the 50s. Probably my only real sense of it is like, I don't know, like the 
the movie movie versions of it where I, that I like walked past and saw part of on TNT one day or something like that or, or Turner Classic Movies, what have you. One interesting thing that I came across uh, in looking through that is that when when trapped on this island, well, two interesting things. When trapped on this island, Crusoe goes to some lengths to husband it uh, very heavily to make it productive um, for fruits and vegetables, to make sure that he's able to to live on it by the land itself because he doesn't have much of a choice. Um, he also reads the Bible and undergoes uh, something of a uh, spiritual awakening, you know, like basically a conversion or a full acceptance, acceptance of Christianity. So you have the bit of the convert story in Robinson Crusoe, which we're seeing also playing out a bit, uh, more than a bit in Robinson. Um, but the character of Robinson uh, in Sparks Telling uh, does almost nothing to maintain the island. Um, he mostly relies on some hunting, um, but uh, tinned food that's left uh, on a yearly basis by the ship. Doesn't really seem to touch the pomegranate since that's the point of the island or what people come there for. But we'll pick off some like mangoes that are growing on trees that have been left to kind of grow on their own. The mango apparently isn't very good as a result. But that convergence of the spiritual conversion, um, but also the, the, the divergence of actually maintaining the land, um, I think is kind of interesting for the obvious like uh, connection via the titles of, of the novels. It's, it is really interesting that you mention some of the the storyline of Robinson Crusoe because more than once January is very critical, either explicitly or in her mind, of Robinson and his failure to make any attempts to cultivate the island. You know, to grow any number of things to make it self sustaining and you know, there are times when she's like concerned about their diet and she like goes and picks nettles and cooks them because she thinks they're not getting enough vitamins. So yeah, I, I didn't know that about Robinson Crusoe, but that's really, it's really interesting. I guess when I was looking at comparative titles or influences, I was thinking uh, maybe intentionally, or maybe these are the ones that just came up to me, female authors. And one that I wanted to bring up just in the context of the first few lines of the novel, which which I want to to read quickly, and I'll just preface this by saying that Robinson was published, I think we, as we said, in, in 1958, and the book that comes to mind when I read the first lines of the of the book Robinson was published in 1938. So here it goes. If you ask me how I remember the island what it was like to be stranded there by misadventure for nearly three months, I would answer that it was a time and landscape of the mind if I did not have the visible signs to summon its materiality. The book I'm thinking about is Rebecca by Daphne de Mornay. It, mm. It's like it's like that Manderly, um, <laughs> that Manderly thing where she's thinking back and it's now just like a kind of a, a product of, of her mind's eyes as she's thinking back to Manderley. I just really, that just kind of came to me right before we came on the air. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That, that, that really resonates. That really sounds to me like the same kind of dreamy kind of tone, like quality that Rebecca has. Yeah. I have this theory that I think I 
kind of suggested in the, the in the comforters episode that I feel like she's spark is kind of incorporating or reassessing a lot of literature of, of a lot of like English literature and she might be, and we'll see, but she might be kind of tackling them uh, in turn in different ways to incorporate elements of uh, Rebecca and some of the more like Gothic components within the context of a deserted Island sounds to me, Again, this is only the second book that I've read of hers, but it sounds to me like her sense of humor as a, as a way of putting things together and seeing seeing what comes out. Um, I also think it's also, I mean, on the topic of you know deserted islands or islands that no person has a really good reason to live on, and that this an island of the mind. I don't know. It makes me think of Redonda. Quite of a bit, course, of course, which is very which is very fun and a very nice, uh, very pleasant resonance to to come back up. Yeah. And then you have those great locked room mysteries, um, you know, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None um, was published in 1939 under a very different and not nice name that we don't need to repeat. Horrific name. Not much improved um, in its initial uh, American uh, edition. Right. Yeah. And then then you've got Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night, too. Um, Both of those locked room mysteries, so to speak, were published in the 30s. So, you know, like 20 years before Robinson. And, and also fantastically popular. I mean, these are absolutely, these are, those are books that everyone who read would have read at that time. Yes. And, and, and even to this day, a lot, like a high percentage of readers will have read those books versus other instant classics, you know, or, or, or other classics. So certainly books that she would be aware of and would be pulling would be pulling from or perhaps messing messing about with ever so slightly in in her own in her own mystery. Right. Well, I can't wait for our next Muriel Spark. It's this is so fun. I'm very excited. I believe the next one up is Memento Mori. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. Um which was published, I think I double checked this last time because we were initially unsure if it was Memento Mori or Robinson that was next, but Memento Mori came out in 59. So her first three novels all came out within three years uh, of each other, the number two and three, like practically months apart. She's hitting it, hitting it out of the ballpark. I mean, but it'll be interesting, also interesting to see, like, is there, is there an interesting twinning that happens between Memento Mori and Robinson? I've, I've no idea, but I'm very, I'm very excited to find out. Me too, Tom. <laughs> 